0: It does show the sort of strain that
1: the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think
2: that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture.
3: Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts.
1: And I'm Lizzie Burden. Now,
3: it's hard being Prime Minister, Lizzie. You get some business leaders over for a nice listening exercise and then they tell you a lot of stuff you don't want to hear. Burberry Chairman Gerry Murphy said that the UK has scored a spectacular own goal in removing tax breaks for tourists. This was the government's decision to end VAT rebates on shopping for overseas visitors after Brexit. Murphy described that as perverse and he said that it made the UK the least attractive shopping destination in Europe. Prime Minister says he will look into it.
1: A chequered report on the Prime Minister. Very good. But anyway, it's going to be one of the tax changes that Conservatives will be lining up at the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's door to demand in light of today's latest public borrowing figures. The UK Treasury, we found out this morning from the Office for National Statistics, ended the fiscal year with a deficit £13.2 billion below the official forecast. Now that's despite the huge energy subsidies, it's despite the big spike in debt servicing costs, but it's thanks to the tax burden being the highest since the Second World War at a time when the economy isn't growing. Hence, I'm sure that there'll be lots of Tories asking Jeremy Hunt to open the coffers and spend that headroom on tax cuts before the next election, especially when you had S&P upgrading its outlook for the UK on Friday.
3: Yeah, well, speaking of post Brexit Britain, there's a nice story on the Bloomberg today that the government is seeking a deal to end Britain's holiday troubles abroad. Officials are hoping they can negotiate a deal that means Brits travelling to Europe can use uh, e gates, those electronic passport gates, within the European Union, as they already can in Spain. Now, Spain uh, did this unilaterally, much uh, to the uh, pleasure of British officials, but of course, Spain is much more dependent on Britain's travelling than many other countries. Now, the UK hopes this is the next step in the post-Windsor framework, the uh, improved UK-EU relations, as it was seen as one of the most uh, obvious Brexit annoyances to fix. Lizzie, have you had much trouble with queues?
1: Uh, I have to say I don't go to Europe very much. And when I do go on holiday, I recently went to Jordan, horse riding through the desert. Of course, And it was absolute chaos in the airport. But I kind of price that in when i go on holiday i'm usually in a good mood because i'm going somewhere sunny how about you
3: well as somebody who goes to less fancy holidays in jordan um it hasn't been that bad actually arriving in europe actually the worst delays i had were leaving london just post pandemic uh, you know when that massive surge in, in in travel and the airport was just not ready they didn't have the staff and it was absolute chaos but actually at the other end i don't think i've really sort of faced any big queues in spain or in france um but i know some people have some Possibly, I've just been lucky.
1: But that was the whole story, wasn't it? Where the issues of Brexit got swept under the rug of COVID.
3: Yeah, and I mean, the COVID delays were much worse, really, than the the Brexit stuff. And uh, there was that minor inconvenience of having to have your passport stamped, although I quite like a stamp on my passport. Uh, But it does mean you have to wait a bit longer in in the other queue. So, yeah, that's a bit annoying, but I I haven't found it too bad.
1: All right, if you've got a bit of duty-free to keep you going. Anyway.
3: You're not supposed to drink it in the airport
1: could eat you sweets anyway i want to come back to shopping hence the little uh, segue the latest cantar data show that grocery price inflation fell slightly to 17.3 percent in april but it was still the 10th straight month that the reading was in double digits our colleague stephen carroll spoke to fraser mckevitt head of retail and consumer insights at cantar on bloomberg radio this morning take a listen
2: yeah, so 17% price inflation, marginally down on last month, as you said. Now, it's too early to say if that's the top, um, so we're going to start to see it down. But it certainly is just a chink of light, a chink of good news, I think. The last time we saw the rate of inflation fall fall again it was only margin it was back in December and back at that time we rather hoped we'd seen the you know the worst of the inflation in groceries <laughs> passing us by but it then continued to relentlessly climb so I'm not going to over celebrate now but We are about to start lapping very high inflation from uh, late spring and early summer uh, last year. And obviously, inflation being a year on year measure, we might get a chance. That means that mathematically, at least, then um, inflation rate should hopefully ease. It doesn't mean things are going to get any easier for businesses or any easier for their customers, though. Yeah, as you say, we've seen a full storm and you have that comparison effect, which again, cold comfort to those of us going out and having to, to buy from these supermarkets. Is there is there a sense of, is there a, there's been some debate whether, as to whether or not the supermarkets are, are kind of price gouging at this point. Is, is there any validity to that? Well, it seems a little bit harsh. Now, I don't think the uh, the, the man or the woman in the self-checkout queue is going to have too much sympathy for big business. And these are very big businesses with tens of billions of pounds of revenue flowing through, through them. Um, but we looked, at, you know, a week or so ago and Tesco announced that their profits had halved, still 800 billion. 800 million but that is on sales of more than 40 billion so they're not exactly high margin businesses so I think the evidence that they are uh, in any way taking advantage of this is pretty thin basically inflation is tough for everyone it seems to be tough for us as consumers and it's tough for businesses and then of course it's meaning a lot of tough discussions between these supermarkets and their suppliers whose prices are going up as well nobody's enjoying this which was I think everybody would like inflation levels to come down to a more manageable level
4: the, uh, the discount supermarkets have been doing very well out of the, uh, as, as consumers trying to, I suppose, switch to, to cheaper alternatives. What, what do the latest figures tell us about where people are spending their grocery budgets?
2: Yeah, so Lidl are the fastest growing retailer in our numbers this month, so they're up 25.1. Aldi just a smidgen behind at 25%. Now, there's similar growth trends that we've been tracking for a number of months now. But I suppose the, the new news is that Aldi, and it's looked inevitable for quite a while, have finally reached double digits in their market share. Now, I started tracking supermarkets back in about 2007 when they were tiny. And as recently as 2015, they only had a 5 5%. percent market share so in eight years they've doubled that which shows just how much shopping habits have changed and those retailers of course their main point and marketing point is that they offer cheap prices but if you look at their advertising and what they do they also try and talk a lot about the quality of their products as well so they've become a lot more mainstream nobody is embarrassed these days to be seen with a discount supermarket carrier bag or to be seen sneaking out of the car park yeah, that's a really interesting shift, isn't it, in terms of consumer trends and consumer habits. What are, what are the potential road bumps ahead in terms of the outlook? How confident are you, given the data that you've been passing, Fraser, that we really have turned the corner on food inflation? Well, I'm, I'm not that confident uh, to say that we definitely have turned the corner. And the reason for that, a number of things. So there's been a lot of debate in the last week with the ONS uh, numbers coming out and CPI. You know, is, is this inflation sticky? Um, you know, a lot was being made, uh, particularly by the government, around, oh, it's a one-off shock. It's due to, um, obviously, what's been going on with Ukraine primarily. Uh, there's there's some worries now that inflation has become a little bit embedded, which means we might be stuck with it a little bit longer. And the other, then the other thing, of course, is the lag, uh, particularly on food inflation. Um, so quite a lot of um, food that's imported will be bought on, you know, future contracts. So that's priced in in advance. And you know, if the if the cost of fertilizer um, is going up today, it actually takes, and the cost of diesel is going up today, those prices we probably won't see at the supermarket tills for many months. So that was why I think we're seeing the headline CPI rate going down. Um, but we can't be absolutely confident the grocery um, price inflation rate is going to follow exactly the same path in the same time period.
4: Uh, Fraser, some, one detail did pick out is also some of the Easter spending. People did buy more Easter eggs this year.
2: Yeah, Maybe we all need a little bit of treat uh, at times. So, the um, you know, quite extraordinary the week before Easter, so the seven days running up to Easter Sunday, 38 million um, Easter eggs or other um, you know, Easter chocolate treats uh, were purchased, and that is up 5 million on the year before. So, people are certainly not shirking there. Um, and you know, the average household spent 14 pounds over the month. Uh, if you have children, I think you'll understand it's pretty easy to do that. And even if you don't have children, if you're partial to an Easter egg, uh, perhaps that's quite an easy amount. Of money to spend. Um, so. Other Easter favourites did pretty well as well so the likes of the lamb roasting joints and also hot cross buns.
3: Well that was Stephen Carroll speaking to Fraser McKevitt from Kantar Index.
1: Well, when I speak to economists, they say that part of the reason their models keep underestimating inflation is that the relationship between CPI and PPI, so consumer price inflation and producer price inflation, has changed from previous crises because businesses are price gouging. Someone who has been writing about price gouging recently is Bloomberg opinion columnist Chris Bryant. He says that the difference between now and previous crises is people aren't protesting about inflation yet. I mean, you and I do wonder where the pitchforks are, but I'm pleased to say that Chris is on the line for us now. Chris, thanks very much for being with us. First of all, what hard evidence is there that companies are actually price gouging?
5: Well, I mean, the evidence I think now is is, is very, very convincing. Um, simply put, um, profit margins uh, now, as in, in, in 2022, uh, were significantly higher than before the pandemic. And uh, when central bankers have looked at this and what's driving inflation, um, you know, compared to previous bouts of inflation, they found that, that profits are, in fact, a very significant driver, perhaps as much as 50% of inflation. Is coming from expansion of of profit margins, and I think this is taking a lot of people by surprise. I mean, already uh, a couple of years ago, you had um, the trade unions saying, "Look, this is price gouging," and um, to be honest, their message didn't really get through because I think there was a perception that oh, you know, it's just supply and demand uh you know this isn't a real thing but actually now you have you know very high level central bankers talking about this stuff including the um, you know central uh you know the uk bank of england governor uh saying that you know essentially acknowledging that yes this is happening and if companies keep keep increasing prices uh, that will, of course, eventually compel uh, workers to ask for wage hikes, too, and you'll get this sort of self-perpetuating cycle of of inflation. Uh, and so, yes, I think uh, one answer to this is for people to actually um, start pushing back a bit, and I think we're starting to see that now.
3: Chris, I wonder if this is an age thing you write about protests in the 1960s but it is so long since any significant inflation I mean I'm not exactly in my first flush of my youth and I don't really remember uh, any any significant inflation is it because we all just don't know what to do
5: I think so, yes, to a degree. Um, I think certainly in the early part of the pandemic, a lot of the price increases that happened, people sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, of course, and there's this other term that our, our friends at the Odd Lods, uh podcast uh, invented, which is this idea of excuse inflation. So there were just so many things that were going wrong in the world from the, starting with the pandemic and then all these supply chain difficulties that we saw. And then of course, the, you know, the tragic war in Ukraine uh, provided another uh, uh, element of sort of chaos and and unsettlement in supply chains and all of this that led consumers to think well if you know businesses are asking for you know these price increases well they must be justified and of course in many cases they were justified and it's certainly not the case that all companies have increased profit margins uniformly over the last few years and in fact if you look at even something like you know the, um, the UK supermarkets which you know often get you know a lot of flack for price increases their margins are actually still pretty small and there's you know not that much evidence that they've been price gouging i don't think uh and yet some of their um you know customers sorry some of their clients the the goods that they're they're, they're stocking the price of those have increased enormously so it does raise the question consumers are reasonably asking well who is making this money then Uh, and i think it can be very very hard to tell and I'm sure but we all have the experience of, of going into a local business, a local shop, and they ask for X for a for, for the, for good or service. And, and you just don't know as the customer, do you, whether it's justified or not? Mm.
1: Yeah, but I mean, what surprises me about all this, Chris, is in an age of social media, why we aren't out with our pitchforks.
5: I think there have been, you know, examples of this happening. I mean, there was a famous example last year of uh, so-called Beansgate when, um, you know, Tesco pushed back against the price increases demanded by, you know, Heinz for canned can of baked beans and those beans then disappeared from the shelves. And, and you know, there was other instances, of, I think, involving tea bags or something and suddenly people were shouting on, on social media about that. And I think you saw also recently when telecoms companies suddenly, you know, massively increased, uh, you know, the price of their uh, broadband uh, services and people started complaining there and I think you know all of these things eventually add up and I think if you do get in a society uh, uh, therefore you know it's all heightened level of consumer uh, upset about this stuff you know you had UBS's Paul Donovan by no means a revolutionary sort of saying look this is sort of important stuff if it rises up the level consumers start complaining Politicians start highlighting this stuff, then you'll get a tendency for profit margins, therefore, to sort of slow down because companies will feel like we can't keep increasing keep increasing prices, or we're going to get sort of political pushback, and that will have an effect of breaking prices. So yes, I think this can be impactful.
3: I think a lot of people might find it. Um, surprising that companies grew their margins during the pandemic and there's a nice chart in your piece and I'm going to probably get in trouble with Lizzie for saying this but there's a nice chart in your piece. on the radio Ewan. Where you show show how profit margins have have increased particularly in the UK Uh, and you also flag a couple of examples from Germany where you are from Mercedes and and Lufthansa.
5: Yeah indeed I mean look uh, airlines, of course, are not a good example of uh, uh, of increased profit margins. Airlines have lost heaps of money, didn't they, in the early part of the pandemic when, when aviation was shut down. But this year, as you've seen, demand come rushing back. And they've been hiking prices incredibly rapidly. And anybody who goes on holiday this year uh, will have to pay through the notes. And, of course, it's only a lucky few who can do so. Nevertheless, um, you know, I think, you know, the airline industry is a good example where they've sort of said almost openly we're very happy that, you know, there are these capacity uh, constraints that uh, mean that, you know, there there can't be a supply response to the the level of demand that we're seeing. And therefore, you know, our pricing is incredibly good and you're seeing that across the economy. And um, yes, um, you know, the car industry is another good example, although there I'd note that we are now starting to see a return of discounting, which is uh, an encouraging sign from the perspective of consumers.
3: Christoph, stuff. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. That's our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Chris Bryant. Uh, Lizzie, you asked uh, where all the pitchforks are. Uh, producer James says he can't afford a pitchfork.
1: <laughs> pitchfork inflation, double digits.
3: Pitchflation. So the British government has begun the evacuation of British nationals from Sudan amid mounting criticism that the government has been slow to react to the unfolding crisis there. Well, joining us now is our UK government editor, Stuart Biggs. Stuart, now we've covered what's happening on the ground in yesterday's podcast, but what seems to be interesting is um, the backlash. Why is the UK government um, facing
4: trouble on this issue? British citizens in Khartoum and other parts of Sudan have basically said that uh, the government hasn't been proactive and the information that they're receiving about uh, efforts to help them leave... Uh, the country have been sporadic and at times sort of automated and not um you know not a sort of fostered a sense of uh frustration and in some cases perhaps desperation that that the routes out aren't aren't going to be available and I think that's where um the government's found it hard to get ahead of uh, on this issue um
1: but is the criticism fair that? they've evacuated uh, diplomats, but then there's been a lag before getting the nationals out.
4: That's obviously very controversial. It's typically uh, not been the case that you would remove diplomats first. The government's argued that they were worried that the diplomats would themselves become a target and that they differentiated between British nationals who have a, you know, a passport and a right to come to Britain versus direct employees of the government i.e. the diplomats and the people in the embassy but it's obviously not it's obviously not everybody's view of of how an embassy operates and the responsibility of the government to stay in country to help with these kind of things so it's, it's 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 it, it has triggered a backlash oh, we all remember the uh the, the the scenes from the the chaotic
3: uh exit of afghanistan is, is it fair to say that there are some
4: echoes of that here? I I, I mean, the situation doesn't seem to be quite as bad as that. So the government argues that it's it's very different in the sense that Afghanistan was a withdrawal. So the UK government had huge numbers of assets on the ground. And so bringing people out was part of, you know, a a much bigger operation. What we're talking about here is, um, you know, the UK had an embassy, it obviously has British people living there. But But in terms of assets on the ground, it's completely different. But on the other hand, you know, the echoes of Afghanistan are are sort of more on the sort of political side that if you have operations that start to go wrong, and certainly the withdrawal from Kabul uh, did go very wrong and, and, and arguably is still a problem for the government. Then you you can't really, if you're the government, you can't really halt that sort of comparison because it's people's experience and it's people's you know expressing frustration and it's it's about the British government's ability to uh, look competent and, and delivery and so therefore the the political narrative will will draw comparisons even if the government argues that they're very different situations.
1: But then, does that? I mean, Rishi Sunak is all about trying to promote a competent government. Is this idiosyncratic, or is it part of a wider problem under Conservative rule, where you've had the Foreign Office budget stretched, the military budget stretched as well?
4: Yeah, that, and I think that's the the politics of it. Even even if the government, you know, can make these points that the situations are different, you have the broader issue of competence of delivery. You've got the collapse of public services in in many areas, you've got the impact of austerity. The austerity has hurt the Foreign Office, uh in as in in the same way as that it's hurt uh, other government departments. And so that when you're trying if you're Sunak and you're trying to say, look, trust me, vote for me, uh this is a competent government, these kinds of things undermine that message, even though there are clear differentials between what's happening in Sudan and 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 the evacuation efforts and, and other things. It it does, it does tie into the broader uh, issue of competence and politics and voting, and and that's why it's that's why the government appears so sensitive about this. Austerity aside, the, the, the world is a different place though, isn't
3: it, from decades ago when you would just need to wave your blue passport uh, uh, and you'd be evacuated you know in, in, in a sort of instant
4: the, the, the world has changed hasn't it it's, it's moved on the world's definitely moved on and I think the British government makes you know that that, that sort of they ne- they make no pretense that that the British passport is is all-powerful if, if ever it was but having said that you know the Brexit debate was about restoration of sovereignty there was there are parts of the Tory party that made it about in, in a certain respect, the sort of restoration of, 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 of the older Great Britain, the powerful Great Britain. And so that it makes it a, a, a politically quite a tricky uh, issue to navigate for the, for the party.
1: Yeah, because Brexit was about the ambitions of a global Britain. And yet this seems to be telling us the opposite. So, just sticking with Brexit, Alex Wickham, our uh, politics reporter, has got a scoop this morning saying that Britain has a new ambition of trying to get Brits travelling to Europe through the EU e-gates. They've already got it for Spain. Is it possible to get it for other European countries?
4: You know, this is this is a fascinating one because, from the EU perspective, they are, you know, understandably determined that Britain shouldn't carry on getting benefits that they apply to EU members
1: cough cake cough eating and so, it
4: and so and so and and if you think about you know ease of border crossings ease of movement these are fundamental issues to the EU, to the EU the EU single market what it means to be a member of the EU and one of the things that from Britain's perspective was the most obvious uh, loss after Brexit if you're a British traveller going into the... the, the these, this is one of the areas that you notice the most post-Brexit Britain. And so it's it's awkward on both sides basically because the EU obviously don't want to give up something that's so obvious and, the, and Britain, the, this government that presented Brexit as such a sort of transformative benefit doesn't want to be talking about issues that show that actually there are some some hurdles and some difficulties to overcome. And so, but having said that, you know, the, the debacle about travel at Easter and the tailbacks that we all saw at Dover and everything, the government has kind of realised that something needs to be done here. Whether the EU moves is, is a much um, more difficult question. From the British side, you could see why they want it. It's harder to see why the EU... Would do it. Spain unilaterally decided to do it because of the importance of uh, British tourists to their to their tourism industry. It's it's harder to see the broader. Uh, what about the bromance with Macron? <laughs>
1: We're neighbours of France. The,
4: the, <laughs> the, it's it relations have improved. There's no there's no doubt that uh, Sunak has got a better relationship uh, with the EU than his predecessors had. So. Uh, you know, it, you can see why they, the British government feels like it can make this case. Uh, we, we have to wait and see.
3: Yeah, such a visible issue, isn't it? You turn up at the border and there's all that grumbling and moaning about having to go through the slow lane. Let's see what happens. Uh, fantastic views on that. That's Stuart Biggs, our UK government editor. Thanks.
1: Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen.
3: This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Thank you very much to Marufa Hussain, our audio engineer. I'm Newman
1: Potts. And I'm Lizzie Burden. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.
3: Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.